Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Let's open our Bibles to the 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'd love for you to have that open. We're going to begin uh, looking in the middle of this passage, and I'll explain, I, I hope you'll see why, but I'll explain why we're starting in the middle and jumping to the front of the passage in just a few moments. Uh, if you are visiting Christ Church, we're glad you're here. My name's Mark. I get to be one of the ministers, and uh, we have been in this series that Jim talked about called The Cruciform Life. How does the man on the cross and the work of the cross change the way we live our lives and interact with one another? And we think this is important because the town of Corinth to which the letter was written. The town of Corinth was very much like our culture today. It was uh, diverse. It had different phil- uh, philosophies coming in and out, business minds, people from all over the world coming through. It's very much like the American culture. And so we think it's appropriate to walk through this text. And Paul is going to be establishing the pillars that allow the church to be itself. And when we talk about the church, very often I think we define the church as in individualistic ways. We look at it like uh, Okay, so it may be a thing, the church is an organization, it's a group of people in charge, it's a building, it's a location, it's an event, a series of events. And so we say, I went to church, which means I came to a worship service to worship God or to observe it, instead of realizing that the church is actually a people called by God into the kingdom of God for the kingdom of God. So that's what the church is, in just a very generic definition. It's a group of people called by God into his kingdom for his kingdom. And in the kingdom, we get to celebrate the king and his goodness and his kindness and all the things that he does for us. So when Paul talks about the church and establishes these pillars that allow the church to be effective, it's important for us to focus on those. And he's writing this letter uh, to some people that were struggling with feeling like they were elite or that they were the favorites. In fact, this whole chapter is on gifting. And there was a a disagreement they were having about which gift mattered more and which were the important ones and which were the unimportant ones. And that's what Paul is addressing. And that's why I'd like to begin by talking where Paul focuses on what the pillars of the church and makes the church most effective. People called by God into his kingdom for his kingdom. And what must we hold on to desperately if we want to understand how our gifts actually work rather than them just being about us instead of being about him? You see, the, some of the pillars that he talks about, there are three distinct pillars in this chapter. The first one is unity. And unity is an interesting concept in our world today where independence is favored far more than collegiality and caring for one another and serving one another. It's all about what's my rights and what I have the right to have and, and you just do your thing, but you can't infringe upon me. Unity is something completely different in culture. Look at verses 12 and 13 with me. Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. Remember, we're shaped by the man of the cross and the work of the cross. So Paul is giving a distinction here from the way they were operating. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. So Paul is bringing them back to the things that allow us to be unified, that God's church, people called into the kingdom for the kingdom, have been called to be unified, to hold on to those things that matter. And what's beautiful about God's plan for the church is we don't have to agree on everything. In fact, we don't. We we don't, all, all of us together don't agree on many, many things. We may prefer it one way and not like it this way, while someone may prefer it that way and not like it our way. And and we have a bunch of opinions and a bunch of ideas and a bunch of uh, things that we wish were, and there's all okay that we can disagree on those. But we must agree on 
Jesus Christ is the son of the living God, crucified on the cross and raised three days later to the glory of God and coming back one day, ascended to the Father and coming back one day to corral his kingdom as a gift back to the Father. If we believe in those things, we can disagree on everything else. If the gospel gets preached, remember all the way back to the beginning of this letter, Paul's not having these random thoughts he's writing about. He's writing this conscious uh, stream about what it means to be the church. And it begins all the way back to the wisdom of God found in chapters one and two. That through the work of the cross, the wisdom of God is made known. And when we hold in unity those things that truly matter. But I also know that there are people here that attend Christ Church because of where you came from. And I don't mean to disparage, but the truth is that you came from a church that split or a church where there were constant arguments and factions over opinions, where one or two families may have controlled everything and nothing could ever change. And so you just got tired of the disagreements and the arguments and the control and and you just had to find a place where you could find peace. And I don't wanna profess that Christ Church is perfect. Oh my goodness, look at their preacher. That'll tell you that we're far from perfect. I mean that sincerely. But I'll tell you one of the things I have enjoyed about being here for the last 11 years is that there is not a power grab going on that we have disagreed and agreed with one another over and over and over, but as long as we focus, and I don't mean hide behind it, but as long as we focus on the message of the gospel and who Jesus Christ is, we can continue to disagree on every other thing for the rest of our lives. But where there's unity and there's peace, but please understand, we have to fight against our broken nature. This church, if it's unified, and I'm saying that, if it's unified, it's not because we're awesome. And it's not because we're strong. And it's not because we're smart. It's because God is working in Jesus for our unity. Jesus actually prayed this prayer in John 17. He said, Father, my prayer is that you would make them one as you and I are one. I love that. Jesus said, would the church treat each other like God and Jesus do? Loving and serving and protecting one another and seeking the other's best interest as the way the the Father, Son, and Spirit work together in the beautiful Trinity? That if we loved each other and served each other in that same way, what God might do in the church if our unity was founded the way it was there. And then I thought this week, if I talked to the fact that Jesus prayed for unity and that unity is one of the most important pillars that allows the church to be the church, we should pray about that too. So I'd like to take just a few moments, very brief period of time, but would you join me in a simple silent prayer to the Father asking him to make sure that our unity around Jesus becomes our most important battle. Let's pray together. Father, our prayer is what Jesus asked of you. Would you guide us in such a way that we could be one with one another, just like you and the Son are? around the most important things. Thank you. Amen. So how do we get unity? Well, we pray about it and we seek it. We discipline our minds to make sure that we can disagree, but we can even disagree agreeably. And we can choose to differ on things like music and style and and all the other items that have divided churches for the years. Translations of scripture and dress code and all of those other things. And I'm not saying they're they're unimportant because if they're important to you, then they, they must in some way become important to me. But they, if they're not most important to the unity of the church, how are we ever gonna live in that? How are we gonna protect that in, in the world in which we live? And the answer is the Holy Spirit 
is going to guide us into unity. It's not by our own abilities. It's by his. It's the wisdom of God manifests through the work of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit. So unity is one of the key pillars. The second foundational pillar is diversity. And this is where it gets fun to be a part of something where, remember, unity is not uniformity. Unity is not looking and acting and thinking and saying what everybody else says. And unfortunately, for the longest time, all the way back to the Puritan age, the church seems to have modeled itself by if we can get everybody talking the same language and speaking the same lingo and using the same axioms, that that will mean we're all united in heart. And that doesn't reveal anything like that. Uniformity is not unity. Unity is about we all believe that Jesus is greater than any of us, and together we are all stronger with him. And so we serve in these purposes. Look at verses 14 through 17 with me. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot, and I'm going to read this, I need to apologize. I'm going to read this like I hear it in my head. And sometimes for me, Paul can be just a little bit snarky and sarcastic. So if that bothers you, you can read it your own way. Here we go. Now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. That's how I hear it. And if the ears should say, because I am not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason not be a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? Unity is not uniformity. Unity is most beautiful in diversity. Look at creation. The solar system, the planets, the way they're designed. Look at nature, the different plants, the different vegetables, the different fruits and foods that we've all experienced. Look at the animal world from the giraffe to the elephant to the platypus. God is an artist. And all of his art doesn't look the same. He's created diversity in our world. We should celebrate our diversity and celebrate it through our unity. You see, God has created from the very beginning. He says that he put this all together just the way he wanted it to be. And within the church, whether you're black, brown, or white, rich or poor, young or old, country or rock, educated or uneducated, cubs or cardinals, God can work through all of us. You see, he has put us together to learn to live together because unity is most, it it shines the most when there's diversity. When people who shouldn't get along, get along. When people who don't have much in common find what they have in common and focus on that rather than what separates them. So our diversity can complement our unity. In fact, I think it's our greatest statement to the world today. But I'm not talking about distinctions and diversity against scripture. I wanna be crystal clear on this. Where the Bible calls something a sin, a diverse opinion about that sin is not something that we can stay much together on. We have to understand that our unity is around the authority of Jesus Christ. And where his authority speaks, we remain silent and we obey. And so where there's diversity that deals with sin, we must address this. And we hope we do. But our distinctions are something that can be a beautiful thing if they're all used for the same purpose. Because the church uses many different people in many different ways, in many different scenarios, at many different times to accomplish one thing, to let the world know that our Father is good and gracious and Jesus Christ is the epitome of that graciousness and what he offers us. So we have diversity, which highlights our unity And then the third and most challenging principle to the American culture, I believe, and I know I have a small sample size, so that may be overstretching my ability to prove this, but maybe you'll see what I see. The greatest challenge will be the foundational pillar of interdependence. It's not independence. It's interdependence. Verse 18. 
But in fact, God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. That he has created us in such a way that our uniqueness, different people working together differently with different gifts and talents for the same cause. It's the beauty of a holistic family. I remember James Dobson using this illustration a lifetime ago. He said that, there's, that God in his perfect plan puts different people of different ages and different genders and different experiences and different passions together and he calls that a family. Like his illustration was, you would not wanna see a family where everyone, including mom and dad and the children were all 13. Okay, you get it. It's like, no, 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 no. No, you need parents that are older, have more experience and have wisdom, learned good and hard ways. And you need children who need to submit and learn under that wisdom that's present to them. And the family is most beautiful when it has a diversity in it, but is still unified around love. But that family is held together by their need for one another. They're choosing one another. So in the kingdom, being a people called by God into his kingdom for his kingdom, Your age, your race, your station, your experience, your background are all useful in the hands of God if you'll offer them to him. The experiences you all have are useful. God has an intention behind them. Now, some of those experiences we all know have not been good. Some of them should never have been chosen for us. And I'm not saying that God caused all of them, but he allowed them for a reason and a purpose under his sovereignty that he could redeem even our worst moments. In verse 21, Paul begins to illustrate using our bodies, his favorite image for what it means to be the church, all connected. He says in verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the foot, I don't need you. So if your right hand decided to declare war on your face, who would win? Neither. It'd be a stupid venture because the war and the faction and the division would cause pain to the entire system. We all know this. This is why Paul uses the body as a depiction of what we together, people called into the kingdom for the kingdom, are all about. We cannot hurt one another and not hurt the kingdom. We cannot hurt one another and divide and tear each other down and and yet still be unified in such a way that the world would see that Jesus draws people together rather than separates them into the elite and to the brilliant and to the right. You see, the church is the life that we live together as a people, not the events we attend together. It's the experiences we have. It's the relationships we have. It's how we invest ourselves into this. And he continues in verse 23. He says, and the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our present parts, excuse me, our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it so that there should be no division in the body and that its parts should have equal concern for each other. So Paul has established that there are distinctions and differences and diversity, but not division. Our unity is what holds us together. And our diversity and our interdependence highlight God's perfect plan and the wisdom of God is shown through the church to the world when we live together in these three ways. And there are moments of the church life that are known and credited. And, and I, I hope you'll give me just a moment to try to explain this. This is something that weighs heavily on me. We live in a culture where celebrity has become the ultimate game. Like the more people know you and the more people think about you and the more followers you have on social media, then you must be better than most every other person. And there's a desire to be known and to be thanked and to be credited. I struggle with it. I'm sure most do. But it concerns me in this community that because of who we are as a congregation, that there are a bunch of people who I've never met who know my name. 
And so they have this false assumption that because I get to preach here on Sunday mornings that I must be a somebody, that I must be a standard, that you know, they know that there's this guy named Mark Christian, some people do in town who I've never met who know that I preach here and so that must say something about me. And I'm gonna tell you that in this church, the superstars' names are unknown. The ones that are doing the real ditch digging and making a difference, building the foundation of the kingdom, they don't have famous names. They don't have microphones and rotisserie lights blazing on their bald heads. <laughs> They're across the hallway over there taking care of the babies. I, I don't know if you know this, but we now cry, call that the cry chamber. Our children have been so isolated for six months that we need to drop them off. They're like, what did we do? And they said for the weeks, it's been a lot of crying babies. But you know, the men and women over there loving those kids smile and they've been sitting with our crying babies and crying children and nursing them through that and just saying, you're gonna be fine, Jesus loves you. Those are the celebrities. It's our volunteers who come in every week on Wednesdays and Thursdays and Sundays. There's the people that are out in your parking lot when it's pouring buckets of rain and they're cold and freezing and they're making sure you have a good parking spot. And if you're elderly and you have a handicap sticker, if you need to close park, uh, uh, park closer to the building, those are the superstars. Nobody knows their name. That's the imbalance in our culture of celebrity. It's, what's your preacher's name? Who cares? What is he preaching? Who's serving? Who's loving? I'm not shaming you. I'm telling you, let's make sure our unity is around the celebrity of Jesus and not the celebrity of a person, a church brand, or a location. We need to hold on to the things that Paul is saying makes the church a people called into the kingdom for the kingdom. And our interdependence is so crucial. You see, he uses the body analogy and he says, there's parts of our body that are, he calls them unseemly. That's why we wear clothes. We cover up parts of our body that no one needs to see. There are parts of our body that we don't know what their purpose is. I had a friend in high school who had an accident with the mower, and he cut off his right big toe. And I'm dumb, and trying to make him laugh, I said, you got another one. And I didn't realize how you need both big toes to keep balance. And I watched my friend have to learn to walk again. And then they had to put a fake big toe attached to his foot so he could keep balance. I had no idea the toe was that important. But I'll tell you this, I don't want to see yours. Is that okay? Keep your janky feet to yourself. <laughs> I know you need a big toe, but let's cover those things. Can I have an amen? Thank you. And I also wonder, like the earlobe, why? Why in God's design is an earlobe? I don't know if it serves a function at all, except we hang things on it. That's all I know we do with it. But I did go to get plasma a week or so ago, and the young lady who checked me in had her earlobe tattooed. And I thought, well, there's a display. That was interesting. And I asked her, how bad did that hurt? And she said, kind of. And she moved on. You see, when I look at all this, I'm thinking there are parts of our body that we don't quite understand how they work, but God has deemed the body perfectly. And somewhere the earlobe has a purpose. See, too many people, I think, think that the church is a melting pot. We all come in from different places and different stations in life and we join together and we all just become one and the same. No, we don't. We are not a melting pot. I got a deep theological illustration. We're a lasagna. Just hang with me, I promise I think this works. In a lasagna, which is one of the best foods ever, you have noodles and you have pasta and you have meat. Yes, you have meat. If you do it with all vegetables, I pray for you. So you have noodles, you have pasta, you have meat, you have seasoning, and then you have the hidden secret that nobody gives enough credit to about nine kinds of cheese. And if you baked your lasagna and it turned into this big bland beige blob 
It would probably taste awesome because of the ingredients, but it would be hard to look at. But when that lasagna comes out of the oven and that top cheese is brown and a little bit crisp and you cut through it and you see the layers, when it melts together for that perfect flavor, it doesn't lose its distinctions. You still see the sauce and the meat and the pasta. You, you still see the cheese is holding it all together, silently the hero. You just see it perfect. And I don't know what God does, but this is a proven fact. As good as lasagna is on the first night, what happens in the refrigerator overnight when you eat it the next day and it's 10 times better? Can I have an amen? You see, there's something about the ingredients of a lasagna when it's held together and it's purposeful is a wonderful gift. And that's the church. We don't just all meld together into a brown blob of what used to be. We actually get to retain our own distinctions and our own personalities and our own gifting. And we all come together in this flavorful experience called the kingdom. What Paul is saying to a group of people that were fighting over how prominent their gifting was and how famous they were and how rich and educated they were and how free they were, Paul says, you missed it. You're just a, you're all hard shell pasta over here. Brown meat over here, pasta or sauce over here, together, great, separate, eh. And this is what he's talking to them about. Because in verse 26, he says, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. Melt together the way God designed us to and watch what he does. Now why would he say all of this? Why would he talk about unity, diversity, and interdependence? because they were fighting over their gifting and they were dissatisfied with how God had created them and how he was using them. And they were judging those with lesser gifts than those with the greater gifts. And you may think when we focus on spiritual gifts, well, let's talk about all these gifts. No, I wanna talk to you about the why of the gift before we ever talk about the what of the gift. So let's read verse 14 again. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many, lasagna. Go back to verses four through seven with me. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in every one, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Do you notice he's doing the work here? It's not the gifted person, it's the giver of the gift. It's the Spirit that unites us. It's the Spirit that bonds us. It's the Spirit that gifts us. It is God who grants those. And then look with me at verse seven at the very last phrase. He says, and the manifestation of the spirit is given for the common good. You've heard me say this and I will continue to say it. Every gift that God gives you is meant to be given away. It's not kept for your own edification alone. So if your talent and your abilities draws attention to you, that sometimes happens. But if that's the purpose of your gifting, you've misunderstood why God created you, why he brought you into his kingdom, into his kingdom for the kingdom so that you can experience all that God intends for you. But like the people of Corinth, sometimes we don't like our gifts. We don't appreciate them. We wish we were gifted differently. I've complained about this before and it's wrong, but I struggle deep inside with the fact that I wish I could sing. I love music so much. I can't play an instrument, I can't sing a song. I just love music. There's a part of me that whines a little bit, like, man, I wish I could, wish I could sing, but I don't, I can't. And some of you are like, oh, I'm sure you're fine. Nope, you've never heard me. Trust me. I ain't lying. Uh, I love to sing in a large crowd because nobody knows I'm there. 
But with all of that, I stop and think, then the gifting, does that mean what God has gifted me to do and the way he's created me distinctly from others uniquely and he's using that, does that make me special? No, I'm just one of many. I'm just an ingredient in the lasagna. And I, so I'm not a noodle, whatever. I have to learn to get over, don't say I am, please. <laughs> You're quite the noodle. Um, people don't appreciate their gifts, but remember, unity is not uniformity. God willed us all together. I see the talent on this stage. I, I see people working with kids. I see people counseling, and they're doing it with gentleness and yet strong truth. And I see all of these different gifts. I see people serving and loving. I see our school teachers who work all week long in our schools who still volunteer at their church to teach kids greater truths than they get to teach them in school. I see all of that, and I just tip my cap like, I am so glad there's the platypus, the giraffe, and the elephant. You see, what I want us to all understand is God did this and it's of infinite importance. He called us into his kingdom, not because he needed us, but he wanted to make us useful. He wanted to give us a reason. He wanted to give us a purpose that matters and he has. And finding that is our challenge. It's not saying, well, listen, you know, I, I just don't know if I have any gifts. You do. Don't deny what the Bible teaches is true. You are gifted. It's discovering your gifts. And you may say, well, tell me about all the different gifts. No, no, what I want you to do is I want you to find the gifts that you have because the list here in Corinthians has distinctions made in other books that Paul writes. He, he's never written a complete list. He's just giving examples of the way that some people are gifted, but he says all of them, including in Ephesians, all of them are so that it helps God's people find their completeness in Jesus. And your gifts do matter, verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed the church, in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Then he asks some rhetorical questions. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have the gift of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret? The answer is no. So he says in verse 31, now eagerly desire the greater gifts. So what is the greater gift? We'll talk about this next week in chapter 13. Many of you know what it's about. Love is the greatest gift. Love for the God who gave you the gifts. Love for the spirit who equips you. Love for the church in which you can serve and give your gifts to this beautiful, beautiful sound of praise and joy that God receives from a group of people called into the kingdom for the kingdom. And in the midst of all of this, I believe that God has given all of these gifts, and I believe that God still continues to give these gifts. I know that will uh, struggle and cause some of you to be troubled by this, but please understand, I don't have the authority to decide which parts of God's word don't work anymore. I get to sit under the authority of God's word, and I believe that God can do whatever God wants because he's God. And I believe that whatever God does is good. And there's nothing evil involved in it. I'm not threatened by anything God does. Now, if man says they can do something, I'll roll my eyes. But when God says he's gonna do something, I know it's good and I can't wait for it. But I need you to understand something. Finding out what your gift is is a community project. It's not an independent project. And you may, and I would encourage you to, but if you walked up to me today and said, all right, preacher, how do I discover my gifts? I'm gonna say you don't discover it alone. It's not always done on an online spiritual gifts inventory, not making fun of those, but please, you wanna, you wanna know how you're gifted? Talk to the people who know you best. You might be surprised at what they see in you that they've not seen anywhere else. You might be surprised, I tell you, I know one guy who's a preacher, not because he ever wanted to be a preacher or even thinks he should be a preacher, but he worked at a church camp where a bunch of youth ministers and senior ministers 
got him foolishly to preach at some Vesper services and campfire services and encouraged that young guy to consider doing that. And even though he kept saying no and no and no, at the end of the day, it was people who said, I like when you do this. I've always felt, it's a simple measurement. I always feel like if you wanna know you're spiritually gifted, your tail wags when you get to do it. People seem blessed when you do it and God shows up when you do it. And if those three things happen, whether it's teaching children in a class or serving in the parking lot or, or helping your neighbor and serving a meal, if your tail wags for the opportunity to love someone that way, you are seeking the greater gift because the reason you're doing it is you love getting to serve your father. The greatest gift is not what you do. It's why you do it and what God does with it. And that's a challenge. So if you would come and say, how do I discover my gifts? I'm gonna irritate you because I'm gonna say, start serving. Because only when you're serving do you really realize what you do well. Talking about it doesn't change anything. Thinking about it doesn't change anything. Actually serving. And so you might try serving in an area and realize that's not your gifting. You've just learned a valuable lesson and nobody got harmed. It's when we do nothing with our gifts that the church, it can't stand on its unity, diversity, and interdependence. Why? Because the interdependence is challenged. Each one of us hearing my voice today, God has equipped you with something we all need. Would you share it? For his glory, for his goodness? Because that's when you find out why God brought us here. To show a people called into his kingdom. For his kingdom. So that the name of Jesus would be known and the gift that Jesus offered the world, salvation, could be theirs. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.